my fear was panic attacks, was fear of the outside world, of going into a shop, of crossing the road, of almost everything. So it seems that everything in me had kind of unraveled because of this pressure, trying to deal with lots of horrors all at the same time. And I began to test myself thinking, I can't go on like this, so how do I make myself strong? This month, the Hurt Healing Podcast is marking both Stress Awareness Month and Women's Health Month. Women's Health Month is an awareness event that focuses on the health concerns that women, non-binary and transgender people experience daily, while Stress Awareness Month is a wonderful way of highlighting the negative impact that stress has on our mental health. Education and empathy are vital for transforming female mental health and providing people with the support that they deserve. That's why this month, I will be speaking to phenomenal women about a host of topics ranging from addiction, burnout, to prenatal depression, so that women can feel less alone and misunderstood and can be inspired by others who have finally found light in the darkness. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. I'm so thrilled and actually very starstruck to be joined by the one and only Joanna Lumley on today's episode. Ever since I was little, I, like many others, have dreamt about a time when I could meet Joanna. I grew up watching her on Absolutely Fabulous, having admired her work with the Gurkhas and have been fascinated by her unconventional upbringing and theatrical career. It was an honour to speak to Joanna about her incredibly colourful life, her career ups and downs, the pressure she faced growing up and her attitude towards mental health in the modern world. Whilst Joanna's view might be one you don't necessarily agree with, we can't deny that mental health has become a huge buzzword in today's society. There's an epidemic of influencers that are speaking on mental health's behalf with little understanding, and I do think it's very important that we properly educate ourselves about mental health and the various forms it comes in, as well as how complicated and nuanced so much of it is, rather than just jumping on the bandwagon. You described yourself as being quite stoic as mm. a little girl, and I know you had quite a peripatetic life as a, as a youngster. I think so, and I think a lot of army children or, or service children their home, their base being switched all the time, become quite resilient. People say, oh, how awful you didn't have childhood friends and things. You go, well, you made the childhood friends for the school for as long as you were at it, and then you packed up and left. And if that's completely part of your life, you don't miss it. Children are very, they take what comes. So I imagine if you're born into a royal family, you just think it's completely normal. And if you're born living under a scrap of cloth in a ditch in near Delhi, you imagine that's how life is. So children just take it on the nose. You just go, that's fine. That's what we do. I mean, you know. So I loved that. And I was born in India. And then we went with my father, served the Gurkhas. And we went out to Hong Kong and lived there for a bit. And then went out to what's now Malaysia, Malaya, as it was then. Lived there for a bit. Then came back and went to boarding school. And my parents went out again to Malaya for a little bit. But they hated leaving us because both of them had been sent home to school when they were children, both and India families. And they didn't want us to be like that. They didn't want us to be sort of left for years without seeing their parents, literally years, going home Amazing. on a ship alone and staying, as my father did, aged six for about four years without seeing his parents and spending the holidays in boarding, in his sister's boarding schools. I mean, 
You can't imagine how life was in those days. No. Do you think they were emotionally repressed as a result? No, not no. a bit. You just think that's it. I know my mother developed her passion for animals because in her holidays, sometimes she would stay with very ancient guardians who lived down in Dorset and they didn't want her to mix with other children. But they had animals, they had dogs and parrots and creatures. And my mother got to love animals. I mean, she had a soft heart, but at the sort of shoulders of a lion, if you know what I mean. And she loved animals. And so she instilled in me and my sister a passion for nature and wildlife, naming, knowing the names of trees and birds and flowers, and knowing the seasons, knowing what comes up, goes down, knowing where north, south, east and west. I mean, all these geographical and naturalistic things are terribly important to her and therefore passed that on to me. And my father was um, a dreamer and a great reader and a philosopher and he loved sort of jazz and both of them adored classical music, which is how I, we, we had it always playing in the house, so it was completely normal. I loved it. And remember, these are the days before, well, we had a wind-up gramophone out in Malaysia and um, records which are now you only see in antique shops, which are 78s, which you can break by cracking them like that, you know, shellac they were. And so they were treasured things which came around with us. Books all the time, books, books, books. And I think I was born happy, actually. Mm. I'm just a pretty happy person. So I, it all suited me down to the ground. I adored my older sister, who's two years older than me and far brainier and was reading Dickens when she was eight, you know. And it was a good life. We mucked around as children. We didn't have things like bicycles or ponies or things like this because you were always moving on. Mm. But we had books and we could make stuff up. We had a dressing up box, which I mm. loved. And, of course, a love of acting and pretending to be other people and showing off and just generally entertaining people and being a clown suited me down to the ground. And uh, so I loved dressing up and I loved change. I loved not being myself. And I've loved that all my life. So as an actor, it's just wonderful to put on a different hat and turn to somebody else, good or bad, old or young, doesn't really matter, just being somebody else. It's so interesting, isn't it, that children, and we so often love change as children, and so many of us as adults, we then become so resistant to change. Mm. And actually, I think, like you say, as, as an actor, you have to absorb that ability to be essentially another character. You're a bit of a chameleon. You're always morphing into... You are, you and you've got to be flexible. You've got to, I mean, actors, the reason actors tend to be pretty smart is that they're always learning lines and always having to adapt. They're always having to watch people for little characteristics you might steal for your next character. You don't know what the next character might be, but you keep them in your quiver, as it were, one of your arrows that you've got later on and you think, oh, this would work. Oh, I remember how she used to sit there picking her nails or I like the way she walked with a slightly hunched back or somebody used to drag their feet and slop along or lean against things. You think, I'd quite like that. I'd like to work that into this character. Mm. So I loved it. I loved it. And I think I had a pretty problem-free growing up. Yes, I had my prefect's badge taken away for smoking. And yes, I broke bounds. And so I was always sort of not, we didn't have a naughty step or, you know, but I mean, I was always being, as they would say, blown up, ticked off, given sort of punishments. But as the punishments tended to be learning poetry and things, which I was good at and loved anyway, that was never a problem. So I sort of sailed through it all. At school, I loved languages. Again, talking, being other people, learning to be how other people think. And so I did Latin, obviously, and French and German and Italian. And I think I would have loved to have been an interpreter, you know, because my, my mother's father was a diplomat and I know how things phrased properly can be marvellous. 
So courtesy was always one of the most important things in my family. Always politeness, always standing up when anybody older than you came into the room, opening doors, writing thank you letters, saying please and thank you, helping clear the table, do the washing. You know, all those things were just instilled in us. So I do it automatically now. Yeah. But um, I'm wondering now, I've gone clean off. You want me to, we, we want to talk about mental no, no, no. I mean, I'm just, I'm curious as to what your your mindset was because you went to a convent and that for some people might be quite a shock to the system, especially after having quite an ethereal, creative start to life, which it sounds like. Well, it was like. a pretty wonderful convent. It was an Anglican convent, which was, they were very rare. Even when I was there at St. Mary's, it was it only had four other Anglican convents. Most convents are Catholic, Roman Catholic. But these nuns were... It's an old-fashioned word, Pandora. It's called blue stockings. It's because at the turn of the last century, women who were readers and writers and longing to be kind of politicians, they would wear dark blue serge stockings, and so they got a nickname called blue stockings. Our nuns were blue stockings. They taught chemistry and physics and maths and Latin and ancient Greek, and they loved us. It was quite a small school, 200 in all, only 70 boarding. So you tended to know everybody in the school. And the nuns were very kind to us. They didn't try to make us holy. I mean, they made us respectful. And in chapel, we wore chapel veils, which were sort of white things, like some sort of head covering. And you would go to chapel three times a day before breakfast and before evening prayers, twice a day in midweek, and then twice or three times a day on Sunday. But you were in and out, you know, it didn't matter. Mm. I sort of felt really free with them. They were I was taught French by nuns. I was taught drama by a non-nun who came in to teach us. But all the things I loved, literature was nuns, Latin nuns. I loved them. They were very tolerant. And even when I smoked cigarettes, they were cross with me, but not terribly cross. Yeah, it's so funny, isn't it? How, I don't know, we have this impression of nuns being this very these very severe, austere characters mm. who sort of instill a very disciplinarian approach in children's minds who are at convents, but actually that loving side. We is, never see it, that, no, no, it's such a shame. And they loved us and they roared, they laughed in the in the summertime when we'd all gone home for summer holidays. They would roll up their long, long sweeping habits. They had full, they had proper full face coverings, you know, so that it was white underneath wimple and then this great flowing robes. And they'd roll their robes up and play cricket. <laughs> it was just great. They were just oh, great. Amazing, I wish I'd seen that. Yeah. And do you think that in that day and age, mental health amongst your contemporaries at school was an undiagnosed feature or do you think it just wasn't as prevalent as it is now? That's such an interesting question because I've, I've thought so very much about it, why there is now such a wave of anxiety and mental health problems amongst the young and why we seem to evade it. We all went through teenage angst, which happens when your body's changing and you feel rebellious. Sometimes you hate the way you look. You get to look pretty sort of, well, in those days, pretty spotty and pretty sort of your body began to change. So instead of being a sort of stick-like ragamuffin, you suddenly began to become a woman and all those sorts of problems came with it. But I think we just bumbled along with it. We didn't, remember, we didn't have any kind of social media. We didn't have cameras. If you had a camera, I've got to tell you this, Pantora, it's literally like a history lesson for you. You'd have a little box brownie, it was called, mm -hmm. and you would have a film which had 12 exposures on it. And that film, because they were expensive to develop, our pocket money was one pound a term, and for, it, they cost four and six to develop a film. So you didn't just take snap pictures. You'd Each picture would be an important picture. Yeah. 
black and white, rather wonkily taken, of somebody climbing on the cow shed roof. Click. You know, I mean, pretty sort of childish things. We were very young too, but we had no record of how we looked all the time. We didn't always have to compare ourselves with other people. We didn't, except for cutting things out of film star magazines when impossibly beautiful people like Elizabeth Taylor or Marilyn Monroe in those days, Sophia Loren, Gina Lola Brigida, these people out of reach. We never thought we would look like Brigitte Bardot, but we would imagine in our minds that one day we'd have an 18-inch waist and gorgeous, thick, sunny hair and be down in the south of France pouting. (laughs) We were just blobs. We were just great, massive, blobby girls. We were happy as a king. So I think that we evaded a lot of the troubles that haunt young people now because you're always being judged and compared, it seems. Mm. And also this, to me, horrifying addiction has crept in, which is an addiction to phones. I know, it's terrifying. It's an addiction. You see, people think it's very useful and people keep boosting themselves up because a lot of grown-ups are addicted too. They have them with them at all times. They're forever checking them. They're anxious. They're made anxious by these things. And as we didn't have them, and as I refuse to have it now, I mean, I've got a phone because I've just parked with it, but it's often in my bag and I'm no interest in it. Nothing comes on it. Nothing comes to me on it. So I'm free. I'm still free. Mm. But if you choose, and it is a choice, to go down the, the road of having a permanent phone, a permanent little screen beside you. First of all, I think it makes you into a kind of servant because it's always rather like in the old servants' quarters, the bells would be racked up along there, the master's bedroom, the guest bedrooms, the drawing room, the library, whatever, and that bell would jingle. And you go, my God, if you're a servant, I better go there and see what's on it. Now people have that servant's bell thing on there phones and things happen they feel they have to look at it react to it got to respond to it and so people are voluntarily turning themselves into people who react rather than proact they're not they don't think of stuff necessarily as much as they react to stuff so they like things to give it a tick or a thumbs up whatever you do or respond to other people's statements but the dreaming of walking about and thinking stuff up for yourself mucking around making stuff up seems to be being suppressed by this voluntary addiction. That's the only way I can put it. Mm. And it's very difficult, darling, because once it's got hold of you, it's really hard to shake any addictions. This one seems to be as strong as tobacco or other things that get hold of you and you find it hard to shake. Because I can remember speaking to um, a school once, and I said to the girls, it was an all-girls school, in the holidays, I want to do one thing for me, and they all looked lovely, because they all thought I was patsy and pretty fabulous. (laughs) And... (laughs) And I said, I want you to switch off your phones for three hours in the afternoons. They looked just to a child, they just went like that. And all the parents and grown-ups behind me go, yay! But no, it was not to be, because they weren't going to do that. They could scarcely breathe at the thought of not having to have this robbed from them. So you must tell me, Pandora, what you do. Do you have a phone all the so time? So I, do you know what? I'm very controversial. And actually, I was, we were just having a discussion before you arrived. I don't do any social media and I have a bit of an allergy to my phone. And I'm absolutely determined that I will be able to grow this podcast and become an advocate for mental health without using social media as a huge platform, because yeah. I believe that you must be able to do it still organically. And for me, it's such a, a trigger, as you yeah. say, it's, for me, it represents everything that I'm not. Yeah. It just fuels narcissism, it, comparison, which as we know, as you identify as the thief of joy for oh. everyone. Oh. And I've, I'm of a generation which 
we were on we were so 16 17 when facebook was created so i just about get away with not having to do it but i mean if i was born 5 years after how do, maybe, what do your friends think of you do they wish that you weren't do they say oh, you should be on <laughs> Uh, when I was in my 20s, yes. But, you know, it, it's been a real challenge yeah. to stay off it. Mm. And I think at university, there was a real pressure to sort of be on Facebook. And it was how all the social invitations got sent out. It was how everyone communicated. And as you say, if you don't have a presence online, it's sort of like you're a nobody. And I still, I hear podcasters saying their followings have amassed to X, Y, and Z, and, and they've grown. And it's really difficult not being on it. But for me, hearing you say that, it's just like, oh, yes. There's a little victorious shout inside me that just thinks I've got to stand my ground with this because if we all just succumb to this yeah. wave of addiction, as you've so rightly identified, I really think it is an addiction. And mm-hmm. I think it's a poison chalice. And more than that, it actually stunts people's imagination. It stunts you because all you're doing really is reacting. And so you're never free and sure you may, people say we're doing music or we're writing stuff. It's not the freedom that comes from being bored or from being on your own or from talking to people or the freedom that you get from being on the tube and looking around and seeing faces who look back and smile at you or scowl at you or leer at you, anything, human. But if you don't get anything back, I thought early, early on that I would not do any social media at all. And to my amazement, now people are actually checking people's followings before they either use them in an advertisement or cast them in something because they know they'll drag that whole lump behind them. And you go, this is a nightmare because it means like we've become the most unpopular girls in the school because we've got no followers. And that's the challenge that I'm facing now. Good. Keep it up, honey. Keep it up. It's a a pretty solo flight to fly. But you'll find more and more people are coming back to it because the fulfilment of that other one is eventually the avenue closes and there's nowhere to go. There is nothing left except hoping people like you. You haven't done anything for it. You just hope they'll put a thumbs up or a take against something, a photograph of the food you've just eaten or something. I mean, everything about it seems to me, I don't want to mock it because a lot of beloveds do it and so on, but I find it baffling. Life is so utterly fabulous and fascinating and different that to limit yourself to this little dull life voluntarily stepping into those shackles amazes me and yeah and as you said it's just why do we think that people's mental health is worse than ever well what's happened the it must be this i I agree and i think also we're frightened a lot we're we're told that we're all going to be bludgeoned to death around the next corner obviously awful things have happened but the other thing to remember is that there are far outstripping are the kind and good people who will help you, who will pick you up, who will say, well, come in here and have a cup of tea and look for your keys, or you can stay here till somebody comes to collect. Kindly, kindly people all over the world, generous and open-hearted. And we've got to believe in that. If we're always looking for the downside and the fearful side and the dark side, sure, you'll find it, but you'll also stop being brave. And part of what I wanted to talk to you today about, Pandora, is that There are times in your life, I think I'm somebody who seems to be pretty sort of even keel. As I've said, I was born with quite a happy nature. I'm an optimist. I'm also lucky. I've got all my arms and legs. I can see, I can hear, you know what I mean? So that's a blessing in in itself. I was loved as a child. I'm loved now. So I'm, I'm happy. But even so, under great pressure, when I was doing a play in the West End, my beloved cousin, who did survive, was actually on the verge of death at the time with a disease which had not been treated properly, 
And she was in hospital and had gone down, 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 weighing six stone, getting thinner and thinner with this dreadful internal disease. My little boy, Jamie, was living with me, and I had an au pair girl who'd just left, and I was trying to replace her with another one. At the same time, I was in a play, that's eight performances a week in the West End, and being paid very badly, so I had very little money. And the strain of having not much money, trying to find an au pair girl who would be suitable for Jamie, trying to visit my sweet cousin in hospital, who was like a sister to me, who seemed to be dying, and also I'd had an operation. I'd had ovarian cysts, and I'd been taken off stage, taken away, into hospital, had the operation, and came back far too soon, back into the same play, far too soon. I think 10 days after the operation, I was back on stage. And in those days, operations weren't kind of keyhole surgery. They'd cut you hip to hip, open the whole of you up, dig around, stitch it up. And suddenly, 10 days later, when I could hardly stand up straight, I was back on stage. So all these things conspired together to make a cocktail of horribleness mm. and horror that I I couldn't cope with it. That's the truth. I had a burnout. I couldn't cope with it. So one Saturday morning with two shows, a matinee and an evening performance to come, I can remember getting up by now because I couldn't find an au pair girl. I'd sent my little darling Jamie, who was about two at the time, to stay with my parents down in Kent. And I got up that morning and found that sitting in the corner of the room was good. And the plan for the exit would be going to Charing Cross and catching a train and going down to see my parents and to be with Jamie. That was the route. Now, no part of my brain said, but you're in a play. You've got a matinee at 2.30. The brain, which I think is the same as people who sometimes are called deserters in war or people who have shell shock, the brain determines the only way to keep your head on your shoulders, literally, or your body, or even breathing, is to do this journey, is to go straight to the station and catch it. So I went down there and I got down and I got to the station and I rang up and said, I'm at the station, could you come and get me? And I can remember mommy saying, darling, you've got a matinee, haven't you? And I said, no, I'm not going back. And that was it. I then went into a kind of, well, I was safe then because I was with them, but it was a survival period where it took me almost six months to get back to being normal. And my fear was, Panic attacks was fear of the outside world, of going into a shop, of crossing the road, of almost everything. So it seems that everything in me had kind of unraveled because of this pressure, trying to deal with lots of horrors all at the same time. And I began to test myself thinking, I can't go on like this, so how do I make myself strong? In those days, we didn't go to psychiatrists or any kind of help or any kind of remedial ways of doing it. I thought, this is what I will teach myself to do. I've got to go into a shop to get food, to buy stuff. And in that shop, what will happen? So I started to envisage myself walking through the door. And the first thing I would do in my dream world would be to walk into one of those piles of things they put out, produce, and I would knock it over. And I might even fall over and hurt myself. And then I would ask myself, the other person watching this was me, what happens now? And the me watching came up with the same answer. Kind people will help you. So then I'm up on my feet and I walk and I stumble and break bottles and they're bottles and they've cut me now. Now there's blood pouring everywhere and I've fallen and the stuff I've broken, it might be wine, it might be whiskey, it might be expensive and I've got no money to pay for it. And I'm now lying there cut in the rubble on the floor. Maybe people are standing around. What are they going to do? And the other voice said, they're going to help you. 
kind people are there to help you. So this weird way of walking myself through, I sort of self-healed, if that's the Mm. right word. I gave myself a ladder or stepping stones through the days so that I knew how to do it, how to manage life. And I've stuck to that, that if you give yourself a few tried, firm platforms, you can quite often get through. It doesn't mean to say you'll be dancing with joy and laughing your head off, but you can make yourself secure. And that's one of the great things is not to lose it completely. If you've lost it completely, which I did when I left the stage Mm. and never went back, of course, I've since then done lots of plays. But then I thought, I not only will never go back, I'll never, I'll never work. I'll never do anything. I don't want to see the outside world anymore. I can just go into a dark place and just be safe in my dark place. So since I've taught myself how to do things, I found it much easier. I do still do things that make me afraid. Sometimes huge crowds when I have to go on and not acting on stage because those huge crowds are usually sitting in rows. But I, I'm still afraid of crowds of people I don't like to go to crowded things Mm. so big pop concerts or things like that or matches games matches or Glastonbury festivals and things like that not for me because I'm not very good in in crowds Mm. but that doesn't mean to say I can't teach myself how to get through some of these things and sometimes I have to go and address big masses of people and before I do that I just think I'm the luckiest person in the world that's the first thing I tell myself secondly I love everybody here literally adore them I adore them and I'm perfectly all right I'm completely happy to be here. So I'm well and happy. And if I'm on stage, I know my lines. I love all these people. So let's do this. And it's also going to be over. By the end of the day, it'll be over. Yeah. And so with those few rungs on the ladder, mm. I can usually get myself through. And guess what? It's not only fine, it's fabulous. You suddenly find that you can have a fantastic time because your inner mind has been propped up and comforted with these little... Water wings, you know what I mean? Things that will stop you drowning. It's really interesting. I mean, thank you for sharing that because it's that power of positive visualisation and actually rehearsing an exposure almost in your head. And so you've come up with every eventuality and quite often you can come up with a a plan which actually then you've explored everything that could possibly go wrong and you've actually soothed, I think, the amygdala and you've engaged your parasympathetic nervous system so that if the worst does happen then you've already gone through the thought process. You've sort of met it. You've met the evils along the way and you've you've dissolved them in some way or neutralised them. Mm. I once went to a hypnotist too because I'd got to the stage where I never minded doing the plays, but I didn't want to keep on doing them again and again and again, whether this was rushing back to the old time. But anyway, I thought, oh, I've got to love going on stage. And I remember Judy Dench saying she always loved the best bit was just waiting to go on stage. And I thought, I want to long... I want to have, have that feeling instead of thinking, oh God, two shows today. So I went to a hypnotist and I told him what I wanted. I said, I've got to want doing this. I didn't know what hypnotism was. I didn't know whether I, he'd go woo and swing watches in front of me. And of course, it was nothing like that. What he taught me was the things that I most wanted. He could enable me to get them. It's auto-suggested. We can only do these things ourselves. You can get help from other people, but you can only do things yourselves. And what I wanted most of all was to conquer fear, because I know that fear is the greatest enemy of everything. If you can get over fear, and you sometimes think, I've done it, and then it'll come back in another thing. It might be a fear of somebody dying. It might be a fear of being left, a fear of, well, it could be anything, heights. I mean, I've got vertigo, but I teach myself, look, you're holding on, 
and this will be all right. Fear of polar necks. Because <laughs> the sort of thing's tight around my neck. <laughs> How can you be afraid of polar necks? But I am. <laughs> this episode of Hurt to Healing is sponsored by our friends at The And Partnership. The AND Partnership is a global communications business working with clients like Toyota, Mars, Coca-Cola and NatWest, as well as charities like the Princess Trust and RNIB. They believe that by bringing diverse talent together in partnership, they can transform the way that great brands are built. They call it the power of AND. On the Hurt to Healing podcast, we know that having honest conversations about mental health can help us to see different points of view and to better understand ourselves. Just like the AND Partnership's belief in the power of AND, we believe that by coming together to share our stories, we make ourselves and each other stronger. To find out more about the work the AND Partnership creates, visit theandpartnership.com. That's T-H-E-A-N-D partnership.com. And a massive thank you to the AND Partnership for supporting my mission and showing what we can achieve when we come together. Someone once said reframing fear is excitement. And actually, if we don't confront our fear, we're never going to grow. And so every time I get that wave of anxiety and I feel paralyzed by fear, it's like, well, how much do I want this? Mm-hmm. And am I going towards the person that I want to be? Or is this an opportunity that's going to open another door? And by and large, the answer is yes. And and if so, one has to face it. I wonder how much of this also is preparation. There was an old army saying, which was time spent in preparation is seldom wasted. So if you're, for instance, an actor, know your lines. Don't think I can wing it. You can't. Mm-hmm. Know them inside out and back to front. So if somebody suddenly throws you a cue, you know exactly what it's going to be. So be prepared. If you're going to do, let's say, if you're in a business and you want to make a presentation, or if you've got to go to, I don't know, a party, or if you've got to appear at something or meet people for the first time... Prepare yourself. Know as much as you can about it. Know as much as you can so that you're not suddenly thrown because that can fear you up a lot. Suddenly thinking I'm in an un- unknown world. I'm not sure, I'm not sure. If you've done a bit of research on it, you'll always find that people who talk on the radio, people, um, politicians and things who come in, quite often you can hear the rustlers, they shuffle their notes about. They've got to have the answers. They've got to be prepared. If they don't, and quite often they think they can wing it, it sounds dreadful. And people just fall away from them and their popularity diminishes and their authority diminishes. So be prepared. Bone up on things. Understand about things. Read about things. Reading is one of the best things in the world, Pandora, because also you get lost in books. And it takes you sometimes, if your brain is going a bit mad, read a book Mm. because you then go into another world, somebody else's world, and you're completely safe. So for a bit, you're cruising. You're having a holiday. Somebody else is driving the car. You're on holiday reading in another world. And in dialectical behavioural therapy, which I think is something you do cope ahead plans, which is exactly as you're outlining there. It's simply identifying it. Give me me a simple cope ahead plan, for instance. Okay, so for me, I have a fear of anything new. So for example, meeting you here today. Mm. So I will know the thoughts that wouldn't come into my head. So Mm. the cope ahead plan will involve all the thoughts. And then I have 
so this is for someone with OCD. So I will have all this of images that will come in and my mind will say, right, you've got to imagine the right images because otherwise the interview is going to go badly if you imagine the wrong things. And then you've got to speak about the right things to start with when you initially meet the person. So it's knowing everything. Joanna might be early. She might be late. So she's early. You should get there early. It's coming up yeah. with everything. So all the practicalities as well as the internal anxieties, as well as how other people might behave. And it's trying to cover every base. So as you say, you've pre-rehearsed everything before it might happen and you've yes. come up with all the different yes. scenarios. And the exit and routes. Exactly. So all the doors, you've checked out all the exit routes in planes, out of courtesy, actually, the little person showing me. And then I suddenly thought, this is quite smart to know where the exit doors are because when it comes, I might have to help people out of these exit doors. And how awful if I don't know if you go up or down the plane or whether they're here or there. And so I watch them, even though I know it inside out. It gives me comfort to know that they're pre-planning it mm. for the worst. It'll never happen, but they're pre-planning it. So when it does happen, you go, I remember when we were children, we travelled as army children on ships. You never flew. So to travel out to the Far East, because you'd get leave every three years and you could come back for six months or three months or something, and then you'd go back out again. But the journey took from Singapore to Southampton was one month on board a ship. And from Southampton to Hong Kong was five weeks. But every single day on board those old tin troop ships, old tin tubs, where the entertainment you had was having an orange, which you could eat and throw the peel out into the sea. You had one orange a day. And once a week they would show you a Mickey Mouse film on a little spluttery kind of projector. But we did our lifeboat practice every single day. And touch wood, not any of the army ships ever, even when they ran into trouble, had any problems because people literally went to the mustering place or wherever you have to be together. They'd all got the lifeboats, all knew how to put on the things, knew where the things were, knew which order they would be in. And everybody just did it second nature, so there was no problem. And knowing that made you completely free and safe because then if a klaxon went, you'd know exactly where to do, what to do. So part of that is this planning in advance. Hmm. It's really interesting. Yes. And I think part of having a mental health condition is often rooted in anxiety. And if you can remove as much of that anxiety as yes. possible, you start to be able to heal that person. So that is really, really interesting because I think particularly with eating disorders, the treatment is just so really ineffective. Is it? Um, yeah. I mean, the rates of relapse are just, I mean, astonishing. And even if someone's had inpatient treatment, so on an outpatient and an inpatient basis. Do you still fight with it? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And it was interesting sort of listening to you speak about your early modelling days when it was sort of like, oh, yeah, we tried to squeeze into our yeah. clothes and it was, you know, we lived off those biscuits that expand in your tummy and make you feel so... I know. And honestly, we weren't very thin. I mean, one or two, one, there was one girl who was, a, who was anorexic and she'd been bullied by, I don't know, Vogue editor in America or something who said, you're pretty plump or something hateful, just enough just to tip you over and go, oh, well, I'm not going to eat yeah. anymore. And she didn't eat for a year. I think she had boiled sweets and drank tea without milk. But for two or three years of her life, she'd lived as in terror because she'd been terrified. Her job depended, she thought, on how thin she could be. And mm. all those wicked demons that come with it. And I don't know how you get rid of them. I mean, presumably there is something like an anorexic anonymous where people can flag it up. Because I lost a very dear friend of mine to that awful disease because she couldn't shake it off and it had then taken hold in such a way that there was no way out, you know? I know, and it's this horrible statistic. 30% of people recover fully. 30% of people learn to live with it. 
and 30% of people sadly yeah, just yeah and it's a very high mortality rate and it's it's a I mean there are support groups but it's a very lonely condition. Pandora, I'd love to hear how it starts. Is it from something as stupid as somebody saying you look a bit chubby? Is it something like that? No, I think it's more deep-seated. I think it comes from being a hypersensitive child. Mm. That's often coupled with being very anxious. Mm. And I think as time goes on, as you identify with yourself, that perfect storm of factors, I think there's an element of life happening. So for me, it was, I was sent to boarding school very young and I had real separation anxiety. And as well as being very, very sensitive and very anxious, there was something I needed to control because everything felt so overwhelming and out of control. I couldn't control the way people saw me. I couldn't control how my friends reacted and behaved. I couldn't control my parents and how they loved me. And so food became the inevitable thing that I could control and gave me a sense of, in some really misguided way, of safety. And it's the same with OCD. It's the same with any addiction. It's that trying to create certainty in a very uncertain world. It's trying to create safety in a very unsafe environment inside yourself. It's something that's predictable and reliable. And I mean, there are so many different things, but underlying it, I think, is being hypersensitive and and very anxious. And if you then are exposed to the right triggers, it sadly just... It's mm, just the door swings open. You're leaning against an open door, aren't you? Yeah, and I think the trouble is, is if it goes on for... I mean, the longer it goes on, the harder it is to treat. Mm. And so I was one of those people who never got to a low enough weight to be hospitalised. And therefore, your mindset is like, well, I'm not bad enough. Sure. So, it, but then it's sort of fast, it just even then you haven't been successful enough. Exactly. At that. And so then you feel like even more of a failure. So you're like, I've got to get thinner, and it's such a complicated mindset. And you know, you've raised that issue of have we over pathologized the young now? Are we just labeling people with eating disorders, with ADHD, with PTSD unnecessarily? I do agree with you. I think that is a, something that really does need to be addressed because I do think that often people are sort of labelled as having X, Y, and Z when they might just be going through a phase. But on the other hand, it's hard because if yes. you miss someone who really is struggling and they might outwardly seem to be coping, and which was me, and I so wasn't, it's a really hard thing to have a clear solution for. I just, I think that one of the things that could help is that if people understood that the French say la lutte c'est la vie, struggle is life, that life is going to be tough. So don't imagine that the world or you are going to have to just go cruising through it going, hey, babe, isn't this great? Because it's always going to be amazing challenges of every kind. Some will be physical challenges and most will be mental challenges because practically everything that happens to us when we're alive is in here. It's up here in your brain, which is why you can find, I've got a wonderful Gurkha friend at the moment, who having had both his legs blown up, blown off in in Afghanistan, above the knee, is climbing Everest as we speak, with crampons attached to his stumps, hauling himself up that mountain, which fit, fit, fit people can hardly get up. Because it's in here, he's not going to give up till he can get up that mountain. So we've got to say to people, look, life is going to be hellish difficult often. Mm. You will feel wretchedly down and losing the race and very mediocre and all kinds of things. You're not going to be that. You know, people say, live your dream and you can become Whitney Houston. Well, you can't. So this is a lie. You know, you can work very hard and become a good actor, but you're not going to become Judy Dench, you know. If people know that life's going to be awful anyway, in many ways, a great deal less, I hope, than it's going to be completely gorgeous. If when it gets a bit bad, talk to somebody, say what you think, say what you feel, 
that's the hardest thing because you quite often feel enfeebled by having to admit that you're afraid of Polonex or whatever, things like that, something stupid, that you don't really want to go to the party because you kind of hate meeting people. Say it to somebody. Don't make it your own private thing. They say a problem shared is a problem halved. At least that makes it a bit easier. We'll still have problems, but somebody else goes, oh, I know, I can't stand it. Should we not go to the party? Should we ring up and say, do forgive us, we're not going to come. We can just go to the movies together. Oh, that was so easy. Why didn't I do that? On my own, I'd have bunched up. I'd have mm. thought about it. I'd have worked out in my head. I'd have imagined all the horrible things that were going to happen. So talk about it. Then when you've talked about it, rather like throwing some pebbles out onto the desk in front of you, the ones that are in trouble will show the ones who really are in need of help. Then you can help them. If people talked more often, then you can find out the ones who are having a real problem, quite different from ordinary teenage angst or, you know, kind of down when you feel a bit blue or sad at losing out on something or envious because you haven't got the nice things that somebody else has got. Those are completely normal feelings. But you can find the ones who are having real problems and then you can take those out and protect them. I'm talking really of grown-ups and teachers and us now because we're grown-up now mm. and we're able to see these things, people who are anxious. You meet them as much as I do. People who are too shy to look you in the eye when they shake your hand because nobody said, do you know, if you look somebody in the eye and take their hand, you're going to feel better than if you don't take their hand and look them in the eye. Somehow it'll make you stronger. Will you try that for me? Just mm. try it and then practice, rehearse it. Mm. I'm all for rehearsing people coming into a room. My mother used to say, she'd say, how do you do? She'd suddenly say to us, and we'd have to say, how do you do? And you'd have to look, look her in the eye and give her a firm handshake. How do you do? With a smile. So that it became automatic. Now, little props like that can help you through. Then there are people who really need proper help but you'll be able to find them. And other people around them can help. There's no absolutism in life. Everything can be changed. People realise there is a way out. This is the awful thing when you think there's no way out. I'm different. And for me, there is no way out. There is. But you've got to talk. You've got to open up. You've got to be brave. Part of life is being very brave. Yeah, and people will look at you and they'll think, oh my God, Joanna Lumley, sort of model, actor. Always had it easy, couldn't be another laughs away. Look, she looks so cool. She's got on full eyelashes and dark glasses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm sure you wake up Sundays and you feel like shit. Oh, you do. And great sorrows come across you, which are, it might be to do with somebody who you love very much who's died or something that's gone particularly wrong. Or And a lot of people I know are frantically anxious about the state of the world and the planet and whether we are going to hell in a handcart and if there is any way around it and how do we get governments to listen to us when the ice caps are melting and David Attenborough every week is saying 90% of our rivers are so polluted that fish are dying. You go, this is awful. How can we do something? So just be brave. Keep on being brave and keep on trying and keep on listening. Keep on talking. That's the most important thing. Which is hopefully what we're trying to encourage here. Well, yeah. thank you so much thank for joining us. Thank you so much, us. Pandora. It's been a pleasure. You've been a star. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Mm -hmm.